and welcome to the 23rd chapter of the Perthian Chronicles. I'm Ryan Rano, and today in the author's chair is Samantha McLean. McLean? Yeah. <laughs> I, see, the reason why um, I've got a friend, and his name is Harrison McLennan. 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 Right. I love, I love that name. The M says the Max. Scottish heritage? Yeah, way back though. <laughs> Uh, sorry, uh, I, I digress, as usual. Um, since graduating in 2015 from the BPA performance making course at WAPA, Samantha has gone on to be a creative producer, writer and performer. Her projects included co-creating Tissue with Timothy Green at the Blue Room Theatre in 2016, producing and directing Well Mannered for the 2017 Summer Nights program, performing in Maiden Voyage Theatre Company's production of Toast and producing Arteries by Ancestry for Fugue, no, Fugue, 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 at the Blue Room Theatre in 2017. Now, Samantha has most recently co-founded a brand new contemporary performance company in Perth, Static Drive, with fellow performance-making graduates Timothy Green and Hayden Wilson. Welcome, Sam. Hello. <laughs> Samantha is also originally from Queensland. With that in mind, what attracted you to come to Perth and establish a practice? Well, I went to a sort of specialised creative arts high school in Brisbane called the Queensland Academy for Creative Industries. Uh, it was a, I don't, there's a program called the International Baccalaureate, which is like an alternative to um, TE. A HSC sort of stuff so you do it's an internationally standardized education system mm -hmm. so they the Queensland government created this initiative it had these three academies one for science one for arts and one for health like med yeah. and um, you went in grade 10 and you did these three years of specialized theater training as well as the rigorous you know second language math English yeah. business blah 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 so I had since I was 14 been doing Suzuki post-dramatic theater theater making writing had you know i've been put in those positions to be creating new work and looking at theater in a, in a very very i was very privileged to come to theater from a very advanced perspective quite early rather yeah. than i guess the standard t high school drama which was has been amazing and i can point every success i've had you know moderate <laughs> like independent sector success to going to that school so when i graduated i didn't want to do acting you know I, I had no interest in auditioning for the big three yeah. acting schools but I knew I wanted to work in theatre and there were a couple of courses and then luckily Fran was old colleague of my theatre teacher and sent a cursory message going hi I don't know if you have any students that would be interested but I'm starting this new course mm. and obviously there was no capacity for East State auditions at that point but Fran was in town for conferences she always is and we sent a DVD audition, like you had a coffee, and she was like, does this sound of interest? And I said, yes, this is everything I've been looking for in a course. So the move to Perth was like very scary, but what I had to do, because it's the only place in Australia doing anything like this. Yeah. Um, and since graduating, I just didn't want to throw away all of the contacts and knowledge that I'd gotten from the time I'd spent at WAPA. I felt like if I had moved straight off to Melbourne or Brisbane, I would be starting from zero with nothing to my name either. So I, yeah. I'm sticking around. Did, so do you see yourself 
Because that's the one, because like this, um, as we know, the, the class of 2017, some people are now going to Sydney. It's that time of year. Yeah. Um, they're making the, the, the massive change. Would, do you see yourself in the future, like 10 years down the track, or like going to Europe or... 10 years down the track. Well, it's, it's difficult because I've always said that I want to go where the job takes me. I'm... If in two weeks someone was like, do you want to be artistic director of some company in Melbourne? I'd probably be like, yes, absolutely. I'll head over there right now. But it's, I guess it's more a case of, I think Perth is a brilliant place to start things. Mm. I think Perth has a lot of room and it's not oversaturated. And although the, you know, the funding situation is a mess in general, there's, there's a lot of really nurturing companies like Propel and the Blue Room and there's a lot of initiatives here that you can get involved with and a lot of really cool festivals and room to start more. So I have no intention of jetting off somewhere else. I would go to learn, I would go to tour, mm -hmm. I would go to collaborate, but I, I see myself quite strongly based in Perth. Wonderful. That's wonderful news. <laughs> Well, this is called the Perth in Chronicles, and I just love to hear when people say, oh, I'm staying. Like one of the great pleasures uh, when I was interviewing Humphrey Bauer, I can't remember his chapter, but it was interesting from him coming from Melbourne to Perth, saying Perth. Mm. And I just find that just so cool. And I think that you could say only, it only happens in Perth where people, you know, well-established figures from, you know, these come to Perth. What type of work would you like to produce? What's the, like, because I know you are an ind independent producer of sorts. Have you had many offers like, oh, I've got this idea, it's politically minded. Is there anything you're willing to go, no, I'm not going to? Oh, I would definitely, I would definitely turn down roles if the show was, if I saw the content in some ways being like offensive. Yeah. Like if I would, I have a strong enough belief in the power and role of like art and theatre to not be comfortable putting my artistic and administrative efforts behind a show that I think is problematic. Absolutely. Though sometimes it can be really hard to tell that if it's a devised process or something, you, know, you can't, obviously you can know intention and you can know the collaborators, but what would I like? Uh, well, it's hard because as a producer, I see my, I see my creative producing and my producing work as primarily enabling and assisting and enhancing the work of existing artists. So I'm not exactly going to be walking around commissioning, you know, I don't see myself commissioning a piece that I want to produce. It's more that I have friends and collaborators and colleagues that have a work that either don't have as much experience producing or just want to take some of the load off their own shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I'm there to support and pick up the slack. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a, I think that the producer role in independent theatre is really interesting because, you know, in, in the movies, the producer, the person who's bought the film, they have all the money, they yeah. can fire people willy-nilly, but in, you know, in the independent sector, the, generally the, the core creative leads the project and that's generally the writer or the director. And the producer is more there to be scheduling and emailing and mediating conflict resolution and heckling people about deadlines and matching up graphic designs with photographers with venues and all that kind of stuff so yeah i guess producing wise i don't have a type <laughs> it's a long answer to say i don't have a type no, I'm sorry. i know this is very early and i have to say 
Samantha has just made me this wonderful cup of coffee. <laughs> it is very early in the morning, in my opinion. So, why do you make or experience art? Good God. Um, well, I kind of don't know any other way. In a little, in a way, like make or experience experience because it's just great. Well, no, beyond that, you can't not. The people who like advertising is art, and the rate, pop music is art, and in architecture and interior design and book cover design and everything is art. Like, yeah, you can't you can't get away with not experiencing art. One thing, actively experiencing art, I find, is just makes you more empathetic. Just, you know, not as an artist, going to see stuff makes you more empathetic, makes you more clued in, it makes you think, gets you out of the house, it supports the, the livelihoods of the people that make it, um, all of that jazz. But as an artist, it, like I started, I came up through, I had, I see this as quite a standard story, but actually, maybe it's not, but I started dancing when I was two, mm. you know, I did ballet, jazz and tap and all the dance exams and, there's a, do you know Trinity College? I know, I've heard of it. It was like the drama exams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I came up doing speech and drama. So you'd do a monologue and an improvisation and you'd read a poem and you'd answer questions about intercostal diaphragmatic breathing and the correct way to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like all that te technical knowledge um, came up through that. And then that led me to want to go to this high school, which then led me to realize that I'm not so interested in stuff that already exists. Yeah. I'm not so interested in remounting stuff that was written hundreds of years ago I'm more interested in responding to what's going on now mm. and giving people voices that might not have had voices before and exploring what we can do with what's constantly evolving like technology mm. so I guess it's my way of exploring and questioning the world some people are scientists and some people are mathematicians and some people are you know tactile or visual and I'm not really I'm so not visual it's, yeah it's just my way of of getting what's in my head out to the world which in some ways is an incredibly arrogant thing to pursue to, to think that it's that the world gives a toss or that you know it's it's worthwhile spending time on trying to get these things that are in my head out to for other people to see rather than doing you know like altruistic work or something you can see a very mm. positive outcome but also I don't see all art as activism either, so I'm rambling again. No, no, no. This is the absolute place to ramble. The big questions, the, man. The big I know, questions. they're very big, but they must be asked. <laughs> I'm just... Uh, you, you, technology. Yes. Are you... I think is the term Luddite? Who, who, oh, yeah. Are you a Luddite? Oh, God, no. Lo God, no. I love technology. Technology's my, like, the... Like the Luddites being like, nah, 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 I don't reckon, not big on it. No, I love it. Like I, Google Drive is my favorite. I am, I am sexually attracted to Google Drive. You, I can't even tell you. I have all my files available to me wherever I go and it's just magic. Also something that I, because it's quite separate from my independent practice, but it is my job. I am a, a virtual puppeteer. Um, I work for Murdoch um, in their education department, and I there's a program called SimLab that they run, oh, yeah. and it's used to help pre-service teachers 
learn how to teach classrooms. Oh, yes. So I sit at a computer and I have motion cap. I have a voice morphing mic and I have an Xbox controller and and there's a webcam where I can see the teacher and the teacher walks in and up on the screen they see five avatars of 12-year-old children and I'm on the other side controlling them all. So they have an, an experience of rehearsing a lesson plan or getting to feel what it is like to stand in front of five people with their eyes just on you yeah. and to you know address that without having to subject actual 12-year-olds to it and with the ability to record and critical feedback loops and, and they've said they can actually... they can. There are teachers that they then don't let go into crack yet because they can just tell that they're not ready. And there's also some adult avatars and we're currently expanding whether it can be used for law and practicing criminal interviews and psych and practicing therapy sessions without having to find someone. And also it's a lot more intense when you are the actor in real life pretending to have, you know, psychotic tendencies or pretending to have murdered someone or... You know, you can't get a real twelve-year-old because of so many reasons. Yeah. Um, and this way, yeah, there's really great opportunities for learning, and I think it's really important for safety for a lot of reasons. So I'm thrilled to be involved in that. It's still in its early stages. It's still getting worked out. They only got the license in Australia in September. Wow. But yeah, that that is a great example of just how I'm amazed at technology and what it's capable of doing. Absolutely. Well, see. Because I'm a Luddite. <laughs> well, so half and half. Because the one thing I experienced this year, I was a part of a... It's not virtual reality. It's a three... You know, it's 360 films. You can see on my yes. YouTube where, you know, the whole yeah. camera and pans 360. And I did a film called Windows into Homelessness and I played like a homeless uh, construction labourer. But it was such a weird experience of the camera. And the camera is like a cube mm-hmm. in the middle of the room. And it records everything. So you can't play to the camera and stuff. And I had, but it's funny, I had this idea as like the next evolution of filmmaking and theatre, how it's going to m- match is making a 360 experience for people to watch or something like that. And I was trying to think how you can incorporate that technology to theatre. But then I was having this sort of philosophical, what's the point? Theatre is theatre and film is film. Do you see motion capture when you're doing the motion capture, have you thought like the, the, the potential for its theatrical application? I think the, the tech and theatre integration stuff is really interesting, especially when you compare it to its use in film. Like, for example, I would very probably rarely want to use a 360 camera experience in a theatre show because I'd much rather put the audience in the middle of a room and surrounded by actors. Mm. You know? So I think technology in regards to theatre, has really exciting possibilities in terms of long-distance collaboration and touring and also making things accessible to people who might not mm. be able to access them otherwise because if you can film and therefore distribute in a different way than charging people ticket entry or all that sort of stuff. I think... I'm always thinking about how you can use things artistically, like this these children that I can be, which is such a weird... It's so odd to talk about. Uh, There's five of them and they have distinct characters and voices and personalities that we've had to learn and be trained and qualified in. Um, And just the idea of of that sort of intervention theatre where you could get participants in and stage a, a bullying scene in the class and see how they 
you know, put them in that position and immerse the audience in an experience of watching a child get bullied and see how they react and give them that opportunity, that sort of stuff. I'm always, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. I don't know what their licensing covers. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't brought it up yet with the powers that be, but that sort of stuff. And I think it's really exciting, but I think the liveness of theater means that it's, it's use alongside technology is a very, a very dynamic and tricky sort of back and forth. Is there someone or something special that inspires your work? Every, everyone, everything. Like I saw the first show I saw, I think that kind of made me be like, oh, theatre can be weird as shit. Um, was a frantic assembly show that was that toured to Brisbane and it was just on my school's theatre excursion list, like the plays you go see with school. And these people were suspended off this bed that was vertically raised in the air and doing all these incredible gymnastics and fighting and having sex, but not doing either of those things because they were just dancing. And I was like, holy shit. Also, the script's amazing. And I was, um, Bryony Lavery is, I love her. She inspires me a lot, actually. Mm. She's amazing. A lot of writers. Yeah. A lot of writers inspire me a lot. A lot of people in Perth. Zoe Pepper, mm. specifically, she's someone I will never be, and I don't think I will never make work anything like her, but mm. the admiration I have for her, her style and her groundedness and just her, her willingness to play and try and to get, her ability to get things out of people that they didn't know they had, and yeah, she's, so yeah, in terms of Perth, there's a lot of people in Perth that yeah. get to be in a room with occasionally that just really galvanize me into wanting to do stuff. Like just recently on the weekend, I was in a room with Mark Storen for the oh. um, Waco's 24-hour play project and I was just, just helping out assistant director under him. It was a 10-minute piece with the Waco ensemble members and he was just great. Just, yeah, I think directors are amazing and I'm still unsure if that's a path. I really will be going down. Um, I'm certainly interested in exploring it more. It terrifies me, but I love it. Because I was very because doing the research and the stalking and the googling. Oh yes. Because <laughs> I looked at the new Static Drive website, which is yes. great, and I was looking at your bio, mm. and it said, and I wrote it down, creative producer, writer, and performer, and mm. I was, I was like director. I was like, I thought, I'm just curious, and hopefully I will see you director. director. Yeah. It's actually so funny, I, Zoe Pepper specifically. I hope she doesn't mind me just rambling on about her. So it's in my email signature as well that it's just like Samantha, blah, 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 email me, blah, blah. And I emailed Zoe recently about kind of a potential thing for next year and it involves directing. And she put at the bottom of it, her email, she's like, you've got to update your email signature, though I'm torn because it's borderline conceited to have four backslashes. And I was like, God. One, scathing, <laughs> but also like very true. And that's something that plagues me is the back, the slashy, yeah. um, the, the Perth independent scene slashy because God, they're everywhere. And I live with this constant anxiety of being a semi-competent jack of all trades and absolute master of none. Like, you know, there's, there's that, that risk. You know, I'm also a publicist. I, you know, I'm also a dramaturg. I've worked in 2017. I have worked and been paid for like 
nine or so projects on which all of them almost I had some different mm. role and position and it's been amazing which is such a and it's such a luck like that position is incredible to be in um, to have people that want to work with you in a number of different capacities but I worry you know that someone someone goes oh I really need to think of a great meh and your name doesn't pop up because the last three things they saw you do, you were three different things. And though you might be good at that or interested in that, there's people who just do that and they're amazing at it because they really lent in and immersed and learnt and become fantastic. Whereas I'm just constantly flitting about like I'm halfway through writing a show at the moment and I'm producing a bunch of things and I love performing so much. And I, I'm always after opportunities to do that. But then I also have all these ideas about how I would want to stage these things that my friends have made. And I'm like, like, I just, it's overwhelming, the slashy thing. And I don't know how to combat it without feeling like I'm sacrificing stuff I really love. Also, I think, yeah, in terms of like, because I'm thinking on marketing, I think it's easy for people to just say, you're just one. I think, yeah, people like try to, you're just one. You're yeah, just one thing. exactly. And, um, the thing I'm worried about more than anything is being pigeonholed as a producer rather than a maker, which amongst, you know, my close people I talk to about art and work, it's not an issue, but people who only, you know, as, as happens when you start developing a bit of a public persona, you know, when your name starts yeah. getting attached to projects, people start learning who you might be without knowing you as a person and yeah, getting worried that. I'm an artist who ended up as a producer rather than an artist who makes and can produce, which is what I would prefer to be. Mm. I don't know how to help that. Just yeah. make some stuff, Sam. <laughs> make, make something. Make something. That's how. I know. Well, speaking about making, yes. as Ryan tries to clump. <laughs> my goodness, segue. <laughs> that segue? Yes. That segue. Um, what is an important quality for a performer to have? Mm. Well, see, I want to say like a, a sense of playfulness and fun and just a willingness to try and fail, but that's because they're my biggest deficits in mm. a room. I think I just get so anxious about doing it wrong that I often end up playing it quite safe. Mm. I think beyond that, because there are some, obviously everybody... I think a sense of play is so important. Any artist in any role, blah, blah. But being able to listen, just yeah. listening. And and that's obviously an acting note you get a lot. You know, I, I don't believe you're listening to the partner or I, you know, listen, listen, listen. But being able to listen to a director, it's it's astonishing how, how often I've had directors say to me, like, thank you so much for listening to my direction. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Who is out there not doing that? I don't, I don't know. I think, yeah, listening. Insert to the room, listening to the room, you know, is it, is everyone really stressed and you need to be the person who's just chill and on top of it? Or is like, you know, are you really stressed but everyone's like really calm and you can kind of know as a result of that, that, like you can chill out or is it like is it a time to make a joke is it a time to knuckle down does the director like they've snapped at you but are they just stressed like you know do, does that note mean do it exactly like this or can you just just listening to people I think is incredibly important 
Listening. Listening, yeah. I listening and having fun. Listening and having fun. <laughs> See, one of the things I have to say in the podcast. Yes. I love ambient sounds. Ambient sounds. Oh yeah, ambient perfect. Sounds. How did the static drive, how did static drive came to be? Well, uh, Tim Hayden and I obviously went through VPA together. So I met them five years ago now when I moved over to Perth. And we were friends through most of that, you know, just on on a personal level. And as kind of emerges in courses like that, you start to see the people that you think you have a symbiosis with. Uh, both creatively and characteristically, you know, there's some, there might be people whose work you admire, but you just go, I don't think we're right in the room together, at least in certain ways. Whereas those two it kind of sat with, and we talked for a long time during Whopper about making it official and making a company. But I, I was a little bit of a stick in the mud, actually. Um, not a stick in the mud, but I... I refused to do it until we were going to do it right. Mm. I, there's a phenomenon um, in the young maker scene of people getting a show maybe into Summer Nights mm. or 600 Seconds or just Fringe at Large going, oh, they said presenting company. Shit, we need a presenting company. Uh, I'll call it uh, McLean and Marana Productions, Inc. Mm. And then that company weirdly gets a Facebook page made and yes, 40 yeah. people like it and the show goes up and the show goes down and then you just end up with these weird half dead half formed theatre companies lying around and I hate it um, I hate it I obviously know no, no criticism to the people who've done that or who are still yet to do it because I know you're all out there I know you're going to do it just don't do it um, <laughs> I was you know I wasn't going to do it until we had a brand until we were going to have a website, a domain, yeah. an ABN, a bank account, uh, a creative team, a plan, a show to launch with, you know, until we were going to put, because, you know, we launched two weeks ago. I think you know, it's for us, it's like, oh my God, we launched. For everyone else, it's like, oh great, another Facebook page. <laughs> you know, another yeah. people telling us to go see their goddamn shows. Uh. But the, the work that went in before that, so much, so much stuff. Um, Tim Green's incredible graphic design skills are such an asset as well um so yeah it, it came about from a desire to have an umbrella name that can start gaining traction that potentially goes beyond samantha mclean tim green hayden wilson like if you go back to tissue and well-mannered they're presented as samantha and tim and samantha and hayden present rather than companies and we've kind of swept them under the the pre-existing umbrella of static drive because we were all involved you know they were they were, com- they were projects that came from the three of us as core creatives, uh, but we weren't yet yeah, um, yeah. ready to have a company at that point. And also there are, there are different funding opportunities as a company. There are different development opportunities. You can, you can start approaching practice in a different way. You can commission work. Mm. Um, obviously, you can, I could just, as Samantha, go, you know, Ryan, I love what you do. I'd love you to run your show. Mm. But it feels a little different as Static Drive asking and... Also, I feel it gives us a little bit more license to have a type of work we make and that decision about when you work as an independent artist and when you work as a static drive. You know, when if I was producing, I'm producing several things for Fringe 
Um, only one is under Static Drive, but three others I am a producer. Mm -hmm. But those three shows wouldn't quite probably work under the umbrella of Static Drive, or they're being, like for example with Fugue when I was an associate producer in the same way a lot of people come on board specific projects for companies to, to make it easier for them because the company's core creatives are busy. I think having a company in that way is a bit of a, it's simultaneously a bit of a safety net and a bit of a kick up the arse. Because um, it's like, you've got this thing, now do something with it. Yeah. At the same time, if, you, if you're not working or if you've got stuff going on that's a bit shaky or you don't really know where you're at in your personal practice, you can come back to the fact that you've banded with these two other people and you've made a commitment to, to something. So that's nice. Absolutely. And it's so good to hear, like, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. There is, there is this massive, and I'm not going to name any names, but there's almost like this sort of graveyard well, not great. Well, it's it that's how I see There's, it. The, the, yeah, and the people you know, like yeah, little like you know, names popping in my head, and it's just weird. And see, that's why, because I'm as with young artists, I'm producing the show for Fringe myself. Yes. But what I found was I found a, an all spissing company. Yeah, they're entertainment. Yeah, I, fe I felt safer there. Exactly. Like, ah, you know, a company. You know. Exactly. Um. Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's great weight and power when yeah. you're with a company. Yeah, absolutely. Ah. What are you uh, looking forward to to the coming festivals? Uh, you mean Fringe and yeah, Perth, Fringe Perth Festival? And Perth. Uh, I'm so excited about Lepage coming to I Perth. Um, I became a friend of the festival for 85 Bloomin' dollars just to make sure I got tickets to that. So, better be good. Yeah. Lepage, better be good. Uh, it's been doing for 17 years, I'm sure it'll be alright. And uh, Lucy Guerin's Accelerator, so excited about. Mm -hmm. I got to see her piece, The Dark Chorus, at Dark Mofo this year. Um, she's a phenomenal choreographer and the band look incredible. Mm -hmm. And Vessel, the collaboration between the... I think it's between an architect and a choreographer, Belgian and... It's yeah, the it's it's right. a dance piece. The set, the stage is flooded with water. It looks incredible. It looks yeah. beautiful. Tim Hayden and I sing both those uh, Far Side of the Moon and Vessel together. I'm really excited because I think it's going to be one of those. I'm hoping at least it'll be one of those things that you walk out of and it's a shared experience with two people and you just go, come on, let's go make some shit, you know? Yeah. Um, I had a similar. Did you see the encounter? No. Uh, is... Last year? La no. When was it? This year. Is the counter the one with the that that lady from Sydney? That uh, no, 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 no. It's complicity. Um, no. Oh, complicity no, with no, the no. headphones and the three hundred and sixty recording. It. Oh, fantastic! I had a similar experience walking out of that, just being like, oh. And the only weird thing with that, the gentleman from Complicity, I saw him in one of my very favourite TV series of all time, The Love, which is called Absolute Power. It's about a PR company. Um, it has to, it's with Stephen Fry, John Ben, very shortly. Oh, right. But the guy, Complicite, was in it. Right, fantastic. And he is in this episode and he's playing an artist. I'm so annoyed I can't remember his name right now. I feel like a bit of a failure. Bald, but it was in that bald gentleman? I, I, I'm terrible. I have no visual recall. I can recall the sounds, but nobody looked like. Anyway, yeah, unimportant. Uh, obviously, I can't really talk about the fringe program. Oh, but. Yeah. Will this be out? Yeah. No, yeah. Post the be 7th of December? Yes, yes it will. Oh, fantastic. Great. Well, then I'm really excited about all the projects I'm working on. Yeah. Um, a lot of which at Summer Nights and also have, as I'll be working 
for the Blue Room for marketing. I've been lucky enough to have a sneak peek at the full program and it looks bloody phenomenal. Really diverse, really exciting, interstate and international, just like really great. They're always, they're, Summer Nights program is always a yeah. treat. I'm excited for Night Sweats. I'm excited mm -hmm. to put something out under Static Drive. Uh, Tim just arrived at his month-long residency in Finland. Mm. Uh, so he's not back till the 7th of January. So we've been in a, a relatively kind of a relaxed, chatty development with for the last couple of months. I'm, I'm working as a dramaturg, but I've stayed out of it as much as possible so that I have the objectivity when they do want me in the room. Yeah. But the Tim and Hayden are navigating that Tim has written and created this piece and asked Hayden to direct it. So where does ownership lie? Where does ability to change lie? Like what needs to change? What's that dynamic? And um, now the score is set. Hayden's doing a lot of planning work over the next month. And then once he comes back on the 7th of January, it is just like balls to the wall, straight rehearsal as if we've been given this script by Mammon or something. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, so I'm really excited to put that out. Um, obviously, a lot of work's been going into it all year. And then there's just... I'm just excited for Fringe. Yeah. I'm just excited for Fringe to be back on and for Northbridge to do what Northbridge does around that time of year. It's a magical time. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's, you've got the combination. It's a summertime. People are out, finally out of their homes, and they're just out and about and saying, oh, you know, what's on tonight, Dorothy? Yeah. Um, you know, those... <laughs> <laughs> you know, wondering about, and it's just a great time to see such a different, vibrant people all mixing together and I sweating. Forgot, I forgot something. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's sweaty as hell. I'm not excited for that bit. The Perth Festival has two pieces from. Well, actually, there's several things for a dark mofo earlier, uh, but two I'm so so excited about is uh, the second woman. I don't know if you might have heard things about it. It's kind of been getting a lot of Momentum and press. This what, is year. that the one with the hundred men? Yes. Yes, I applied for that. And yeah. I'm, I'm, yes. It's such a great experience. Yeah. Um, although the dark mofo model was, I'm sorry, Perth, but a little more exciting to me because you could just walk in and out whenever through the whole night. Just and apparently, um, I think people will be restricting that. They'll be entering and exit times. Um, oh, that's not confirmed. Heard on the grapevine. Yeah. I don't know, uh, but I think it will be like a little less. Flexible, but Tim did it too. He did two slots when we were at um, Dark Mofo, wow. and just phenomenal. Uh, so amazing. She is incredible, and also having uh, done her proximity piece yeah. quite recently, um, Natalie is just just phenomenal. And Siren Song, which was, I don't know if it'll I actually wonder if it'll be the same tracks or if it's been redeveloped for Perth, but it is this incredibly haunting they mount speakers on the top of all this, the high rises in the city and in Hobart it's right on the wall on the water yeah, yeah, yeah. which is incredible and it's sunrise and sunset every day this yeah. choir of just weird ethereal haunting soundscape comes out and then in Dark Mofo at least I don't know if here but there's a helicopter with like the, the tsunami warning helicopter. So it has this incredible sound system that normally blows an alarm. It comes and joins in and circles around the top of the crowd for the rest of the, and the sound is split between different buildings and the helicopter and it's doing loops and then it flies away and it stops. And that happens twice a day for 10 days. And that's coming here. And I'm so excited because you cannot 
you just can't, you, the the transformative nature of what that does to a city in a festival environment is it's just everyone just stops you know it's it's like it like it's like looking at a scene yeah. from those disaster movies yeah. where the alien spaceship comes and you just have that like that silent street of everyone just looking up it's yeah. amazing so I'm so excited that's going to be here also there's so it's called The Second Woman mm. and I find that's amazing so she's going to be performing for 24 hours mm. but she doesn't have any breaks she has a few oh, there's good. like a well, fi- there's some 15 minute periods I think where she could stop and uh, take a moment take a breath because you don't there's there's pushing yourself and then there's you know I'll die the day after I do this theatre piece yeah. get in while you can you know so I, you know she now it's very good and this is coming from her mouth not mine at pushing she said she's really interested in pushing and seeing how far she can get and, and navigating that line of like what is safe and what's unsafe and what is too far and what's comfortable so I think she's good at knowing what she can go through and now having done it I think this would be its third or fourth maybe fourth now Right. reincarnation yeah. at least this year that I know about I'm sure it's had a long life before that so I'm sure she's learning what she needs uh, well I think we've pretty much covered this but I, I might as well ask you this do you have an interest in adapting classical works for the stage it's interesting that question is very interesting um, and I, I know you have a pretty mm. strong rooting in, in the classics um, <laughs> and affinity with them and you know I I I appreciate them to study absolutely. I think the pedagogy of, of theatre and knowing where what you're making has come from is incredibly important because one, it stops you being like, I am a fucking visionary. Look at this new thing. You're like, oh, actually, if you just go to the 80s in Berlin, uh, you're very late to the scene, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but also just, you know, that thing, you got to know the rules to break them. I'm a strong believer in that as well. If you want to start messing around with form, I reckon you should be able to look at uh, a perfectly standard structure and to be able to, you know, there, like there's the inciting incident, like that's the rising action, there's yeah, the yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay, one of the shows I'm working on for Fringe is Minus One Sister, which is uh, an Electra. Ah, yeah. uh, written by an Australian female playwright quite recently. It's set in Australia in the Australian voice, and mm. I am a strong believer that if you're going to do the classics, there needs to be a reason that I should give a crap right now, mm. rather than watching something that is genuinely responding to right now. And there are a lot of universal themes and a lot of universally accessible stuff that is in those stories so I don't think that it's totally I don't think it's like not get rid of it but I would much I'm always much more excited when people have extracted what's relevant and credited that source Mm. and then thrown it back in our faces like I talk a lot about Dangmofo because I love it I've been the last three years and I love it and I have to talk about it a lot because so few people I interact with have seen the things because I'm lucky enough to have friends in Hobart. So going over there is less of a giant expense because I can crash. Claire Watson, obviously recent like new, new artistic director of Black Swan, I saw a piece she directed that was down from Melbourne of the Back Eye 
with a bunch of like 14 to 16 year old girls and one male opera singer, a young boy soprano. Yeah. Phenomenal set. It was this giant warehouse and there was only, the only text they kept was the herdsman speech, yeah. which was just, there was a girl on a couch just reading it off the book straight out to us, the herdsman speech, telling about how the women were ripping the, the, each other apart and, you know, suckling goats to their breast and all yeah. that business, pulling honey out of rocks and snakes and just ridiculous stuff. There was just, it's just, there were, the male gaze was just so, like, punched in the face because you just, you're like, I don't, like, get out of your bikinis, you 14-year-old girls. Like, oh my God, I was a, a young woman and I felt uncomfortable I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been an older man in that audience because yeah. they were really going like look at us do you like this like they weren't saying that but yeah. with their bodies with the action with the direction and there was this choreography where there's just they're in these like beige leotards if Claire Watson listens to this and I'm misdescribing it it's because I can't remember <laughs> things visually I'm sorry Claire but you know they're just in this formation and just doing this like one two three four five six seven eight one two this repetitive counted choreography and then the the girl at the front just starts bleeding gold down her thighs well, and it gets faster and faster it's just phenomenal and that's a back eye I want to see yeah. you know I that's a back eye I want to see I want to see an Electra that's that's Australian you know if I'm seeing Electra in Perth in 2017 I want to know why Electra is relevant to Perth in 2017 mm. that I've told you a lot that's how, no, no, that's no. how I feel about it yeah I, I definitely feel like with the classics now, because, like, yeah, it's a, it's very... Uh, see, I like classics because you are acknowledging history of the artists that have come before you. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I think with the classics, because, like, it's speaking about, you know, Elizabethan theatre and, uh, you know, Shakespeare and um, they're coming from the time of, you know, pageantry and, you know, theatre uh, was a spectacle. And I feel like with the classics, you can have a spectacle. That's what I love about the, 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 how you can have a, easily have a spectacle like that. And that's just fabulous. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just looking at this question. <laughs> and I'm giggling to myself. Oh. No, okay. What is needed in a rehearsal room? Pen, paper, no. <laughs> Sorry. I pretend I didn't make that terrible joke. Um, people. Yes. I know that sounds super obvious, but people that you want to work with and that want to make the work. I think, you know, we've all had, we've all had crappy processes. We've all gone through horrible making processes. I think people who stand there and go like, oh, I've never had a struggle of like, collab like a difficult collaboration. You're like, well... Maybe you didn't, but I can bet you someone else in that room thought so if that's how you're feeling. Like, anyway. Um, the, maybe, maybe I'm really... I'm very cynical. But when things get shit in the room, as they always will, because what we do is very vulnerable and you give a lot of yourself and what, what's going on in your life, obviously you leave that outside the room, but, you know, when, when things fall to crap outside the room, sometimes in the room all you can do is just like... ah. Yeah. The, so when things fall apart what I think holds things together is that everybody in that room knows it's about the work mm -hmm. that, that when things go wrong and you disagree that it's about what you're making and not who you're with and like not 
each other or who you are, but that everybody can, even things get heated, that everyone can take a breath and go, we're making this because we believe in it and we can make the best decision for the work. And I've been in rooms that I've been in, you know, in, in charge of rooms where for various reasons, the problem was the people, not that people, like not that there was a person who was the problem, but the problem was the mix of people and their relationships and that dynamic and where they were at, where I was at, where anyone was at in, in their trajectory. And I don't, I really don't think it's possible to mount a good piece of theater or at least give a piece what it deserves, I guess, if you can't get beyond the people. And like I said before, like a sense of fun, a, sense, a willingness to play, to fail, because nothing good ever happens if you're just like, well, I know that playing it like this will work. Like, great, that probably means 8,000 other people have seen 8,000 other people play it like that. Yeah, just lack of fear, sense of play, willingness to fail, and some, some stimulus, I think. Some, yeah. some, what you need in a rehearsal room is someone steering. I think I have come to a point in my practice that I don't believe in ensemble based devising as a fully complete process of mounting a piece of work. Sure. Create one. I don't believe in creating a new piece that you need to have someone who's specifically a director. I think having a writer is very underrated and I think a lot of, People come out of devising courses or from devising backgrounds with some weird idea that devising means you don't have a playwright. Mm. I love um, working as a devising playwright. It's one of my favorite ways to work, to have people in a room, whether I'm up or down, in or out, and to be able to take what they've given me and then do the, the incredibly rigorous bloody job of a writer to make it sound because I think the scripts of device pieces are often their biggest failures because people forget that writing isn't just putting down what people have said at some point, that it's so much work and so much craft yeah. that is, it falls a bit by the wayside. I had, a, I, Helly Turner has a lot of yeah. really great stuff to say on that as well, on the, the sacrifice that device theater kind of makes for writing, but not, it's not a necessity. I think it just happens a lot, but yeah, that I think once, once you've made something, once you have this thing you want to present, I don't think you can mount it as well as it deserves to be mounted without someone on the outside pushing you because you can't feel the ebbs and flows. You can't feel the pauses and the gaps and you can't see everything if you're inside it at the same time. So I think if you want to devise, devise, make it, come up with this thing you love and then either recast someone and get someone to step out or get a director you trust in even for two weeks mm. at the end before you go up just to be there to go all right i get what you guys are doing and this is how you make it happen yeah totally agree what should an artist be wary in the rehearsal room though all oh, because you're like i think stress oh god yeah stimulus or uh, i was gonna say boredom mm. and, I, and i'm glad you brought up you need stimulus mm wary of uh ego i think and this comes down to you know it it's at the center of a lot of what i talk about and think about and a lot of what i think has been a through line of it, of of tough rehearsal rooms i've been in both in charge of and a part of in different ways just that when people can't separate the note from a criticism of of themselves you know mm -hmm. when 
when people can't see that them losing lines is to aid the speed of the climax and can't yeah when you can't take the work from out from tied up to your self-worth yeah. then just nothing good happens because because then it makes the director really concerned about how to tell you anything like god i need to tell him that you know that he needs to walk faster in that scene but i'm so worried he's gonna cry like because because they're like but i made this choice and because you're telling me this choice is wrong that means i'm wrong and therefore i'm bad it's like no it was a great choice thank you for showing me thank you for helping me know for certain that you need to walk faster like that's all it is <laughs> did other work no like there's I can't think of a time a director has given me a note or I've given anyone a note whether or not they agree with that that, that has been about them. Mm. Like that it's been any, in any way a reflection of their abilities. Because it's, it's not like, mm. it's about what makes, it's about the audience. Notes are about the audience, mm. not the actor. I think also it's, it's one of those hard things but it's one of the wonderful challenges where ego can just get so jacked up in, in, in the arts and you know, I just... Yeah, grows so ridiculously. I think what I always try to remember, and one of the important lessons uh, I've sort of tried to keep on, is like the, the the notion of service. You're either serving the playwright or you're serving the greater good or the a cause. Yeah, exactly. For me, I try and keep that as the audience. You are in service of the audience. Mm. You know, it might might feel really great to scream that line, but like if you're gonna alienate everyone, yeah. sure, just just stand there and say it. Also on the ego thing as well, I feel like I've been talking a little much about the ego of the performer, which is a huge issue as well, but, but the ego of a director, or of a maker, of a playwright, when playwrights specifically as well, I love, Liz Newell is an incredible, incredible example of, well, when I was working on Toast, much as it was an incredibly fun play to perform and such a fun role, and it's just a small, ditzy role of a real estate agent, watching Emily McLean and Liz Newell like early on in the process and even right up to opening navigate with each other and with us the the evolving script was just it was a privilege like they're so generous and open and separate from ego um and having Ali Van Rieken in the room as a performer who's so incredible and so you know her craft is so honed you know, we'd sit around the table, we'd read the scene. We'd all have a chat, things make sense, things don't make sense. By this point, you've got a sense of your character and you're like, I don't feel like she'd be that cruel there. And this is like, okay, okay, we'll see. Well, I, I had it, you know, I was making her that intense so that, you know, a couple pages later when she says this, it's been brewing and you go, oh, yeah, okay, okay. So we need something that signifies it's leading up, but maybe yeah. it's a bit less harsh. Let's try this line. And you just watch... The work be served and you watch every conversation be about what you're achieving you know rather than Ali being like I don't like saying that line was like well you're gonna say it because I wrote it <laughs> or like or you know or like Ali be, you know Liz saying I might change this line and Ali being like no 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 I'll just say it less intensely you know none of that is just none of that it's <laughs> just this beautiful three-way collaboration of director performer and writer performers you know Amy Amy and Anna as well just just a phenomenal group of women. That project was amazing to work on. Um, yeah, so knowing as someone in charge of the room that offers that actors give you are the reason you have them there 
and you might have read a scene and just seen it staged perfectly in your head and someone gets up and you think that the character you've you've read the characters you know furious and they go up and they're crying and you're like damn i had not thought of that and that really fucks with my whole rehearsal plan but like let's look at this more this is amazing this is why we've hired you this is why that you can't just this is why rehearsal processes are that give and take because you can't know what they're going to give you or offer you and you need to be able to get rid of your ideas of what you thought it was going to look like or what would work and listen that's what i'm not i'm bad at that sometimes i get a little like but i thought it was um but yeah how do you cope with stress oh god (laughs) i am not the person to ask that uh (laughs) um I just, I cope with stress by becoming this horrible, productive robot. Like, mm. if, I'm, if I'm stressed, it's probably because I have a lot to be doing and there's a lot of pressure, which probably means I'm not sleeping enough. It's, I'm, 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 it's unusual for me to be very stressed and well-rested at the same time. They tend to, yeah. <laughs> obviously, for, for most people, cross over. I drink too much coffee and... When I'm stressed, everything in my life just kind of like hardens and tightens and my schedule becomes immovable and everything must get done and soft deadlines I give other people become hard deadlines and when you don't get back to me, I will get back to you swifter and more tersely. Like, I don't, I don't mean to do it. Yeah. But I just know that I, I cope with stress by becoming this like productivity monster of feeling like I have so many balls in the air like my energy like you can't see people at home but I'm making wide demon eyes and monster claws to try and <laughs> explain this like like so I think it's like I have friends when they're stressed they shut down and don't mm. do anything like I'm so stressed I'm immobilized yeah. whereas when I'm stressed I'm just like I'm gonna do everything and if you don't do it quick enough I'm gonna do it for you and it's it's, it's a helpful there are some aspects of it that are very helpful it means that I don't let things fall by the wayside but I can become a bit of pleasant to work with yeah uh which i own i own that apologies to all who have had to (laughs) deal with that to try and mitigate that which is the actual question you asked me Mm. i guess i had to describe the ways in which i get stressed i try to do fun things and i tend to need that to be with other people because when i'm super stressed the idea of prioritizing some time to myself is unthinkable. Like, there's just no way I'm going to take a me day in amongst, like, yeah. you know, having 17 emails I haven't responded to and a deadline coming up on Monday and a rehearsal to plan. Like, oh, I'm going to go to the beach. No. Like, <laughs> I should turn my phone off and go to the beach. Turning my phone off, actually, is something I'm ongoingly working on because it helps because I'm not, like, don't have this weird thing of anxiety of like emails popping up and, yeah. and reminders. I can't, I can't handle red one notifications. Like there must be none at all times. Yeah. So it's great for people who send me, you know, dramatic messages because I'm like, well, I have to read it. I have to, I have to have seen it. Cause otherwise there's going to be a red one on my phone. So you win this time. Um, <laughs> but you know, it means I get an email. I need to read it. Yeah. I get a, a Facebook notification. I turned actually Facebook notifications off, but you know, messages. Yeah. I need to see it and read it and deal with it. Once it's dealt with, I'm chilled out. So turning my phone off gets rid of that. 
but then it brings up the anxiety monster of like, but what if someone sent you a really important email and you haven't read it? What if like one of your friends run out of petrol and you haven't got the message or like, what if, you know? And so I'm learning that I am in no way important enough for any correspondence I get in a four hour gap to be live roading. How about that? Uh, Working on that. So like phones off and away and like finding people that I love my friend, you know, my friends, sometimes calling my mom, obviously my family is all interstate that can distract me and remind me that the world is not tied up into this rehearsal process. Shockingly, this independent project is not the be all and end all of anyone's universe. Yeah. And doing something fun, going to see a movie or you know, drinking sometimes, although I'm, I refuse to admit that that's an actual stress coping mechanism because then I'd have that on tape and people could use it against me in the future. Um, yeah, trying to surround myself with people that are unrelated to the stress or if they're people that I love that are within the stress, trying to put them in a context that isn't stressful and like going to the beach with people or watching movie or blah, 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 blah. And um, just trying to get away from it in however desperate clawing myself out of a way that I can. That's just wonderful, son, because that's how exactly I feel, and you've yeah. perfectly articulated. Oh, this, yeah, thank you very much. And <laughs> I have to say, uh, time has almost run out, but as, as I always fucking say, <laughs> as I always say, the sign of question for this Perfect Chronicles Correct. thing, yes. as you might be aware, Hopefully, if all goes to plan, we will be meeting again in this capacity. Hopefully, in a much more professional manner. I'm sure. And a better be microphone, rich. and, and be yeah, rich we'll be hell. rich in, <laughs> in another country. Uh, so yeah, we're going to meet in year 2027. Don't know where. Don't know how. Don't know what's going to happen. But we'll meet and catch up again. In that time, Sam, in the year 2027, what would you like to plug? Plug. Promote. I would like to promote the like varied range of applications that are open for young emerging artists to get money or space from some company or venue that I'm in charge of that has gender parity and like doesn't even need to worry about diversity because it's so obviously fine, yeah. like representationally, just you know, on it. And I'd like to be going, well, for all you recent graduates out there, we've got our Schmer funding program and our Schmer Schmer internship and our Schmer 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 blah, blah, blah. So that's what I'd like to be plugging, 2027. Absolutely. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming today. No, me coming to you. Yeah, exactly. For allowing this to happen this day. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.